Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Good morning, church. My name is Ellen Framian. I've had the privilege of being a part of this family since 2005 when I first came to Houston to come to medical school. And my husband is Brandon Freeman, who works at the church, and it's my privilege and honor and joy to talk about Jesus with you today. Would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, may I decrease so that you would increase. May we decrease so that you would increase in our lives. Holy Spirit, come now, for you have promised, Father, that where two or more are gathered in your name, there you will be. Would you open our ears, open our eyes, and more open our hearts to receiving your, your word today? Would we be transformed by it until we meet you face to face? In Jesus' name, amen. So if there are any kids out there, I have a little treat for you today. All right, here it is. What is this? Does anybody know what this is? It's an artichoke. Can you eat this? Would you want to eat this? Why wouldn't you want to eat it? It's pointy. And it's not only pointy on the outside, but it is pointy on the inside. It's got all this little spiky, spiny fiber. Now this is the part of the artichoke that you eat. And in order to eat this delicious, nutty, sweet part, my kids actually like it, even Peter, you have to take off all this spiny stuff. Look, this is the one I prepared, and this is all the spiny stuff I got off of it. Whoa, it was a lot of spiny stuff. So this artichoke, the part that you eat, um, this is called the artichoke heart. And our hearts are a lot like this, because you know what? All this spiny stuff called sin, which is the things that we do or say that are against God, cover our hearts on the outside And the Bible says that the outside mean stuff we say, disobeying our parents, mean things we do, hitting our brother or sister, classmates, that that outside stuff is due to our sinful, spiny self on the inside. So we have to ask God to come in and change our artichoke hearts into a heart that is sweet and good and ready to be used by him. And now we are going to journey back in time to learn about when 3,000 people changed their spiny artichoke hearts into something good and refined and beautiful for the Lord. Now, can you all imagine what it would have been like on that first Pentecost, being among the multitudes of Jews and proselytes that had journeyed from their country to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Festival of Weeks? Now, this festival had been written about in Levitical law. It was predictable. They knew what rituals, what they were supposed to do, what they were going to say, how much time they should take off for travel. And it was not only one, but one of three pilgrimages that they would make annually to Jerusalem. But on this Pentecost, something extraordinary and not predictable had happened. The Holy Spirit had come and rested upon the apostles And they spoke the word of God, and the people could not understand in their common language of Hebrew, but in their own language. 
And not only that, but Peter, who had denied Jesus three times and had to be forgiven himself, stood up and had to proclaim God's word again in a way that they could understand that the Holy Spirit promised by the prophets was now acting among them and that Jesus was the Christ and the Lord and they had crucified him. So the juxtaposition of this awe about the prophecies coming true was juxtaposed to this truth that they were sinners and that they had crucified Jesus. As you can imagine, this was a very intense moment. Let's read it together. So Acts 2, 37 through 41. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his words were baptized, and there were added to that day 3,000 souls. When I was preparing this message and I told my children, like, what stood out to them? David said, 3,000 souls. I've never seen that happen. So what did happen? How could 3,000 souls simultaneously be cut to the heart? This term cut to the heart is really deep and poignant. It carries a sense of deep conviction, even pain and sorrow, a personal and soulful agitation. I thought of this interrogation light, which I kind of feel like I'm standing under right now, <laughs> had just been turned on, leaving you exposed and naked, realizing the depravity of your soul. You know that you're guilty, and there's nothing you can do about it. That cuts to the heart. But what would solicit a response like this from this crowd? Just seven weeks earlier, they had also pilgrimaged for Passover. And as per Passover tradition, the Roman governor would release a prisoner of the crowd's own choosing. So when the Roman governor Pilate says, do you want Barabbas, the insurrectionist or murderer, or this Jesus dude who I really can't figure out what's wrong with him? They said Barabbas, and they sent Jesus to be crucified. Not only that, but they were probably the same crowd that watched him on the cross dying and hurled insults at this man with whom Pilate could find no fault. And as they were hurling the insults, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And now after all of this hatred, they are cut to the heart when Peter declares Jesus as Lord and them to be murderers. What has brought about this change? To understand this response, we need to remember what Peter has claimed. In Acts 2, 36, Peter says, Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you had crucified. Now, Peter claims that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And devout Jews would have been actually familiar with people, men, 
claiming themselves to be the Messiah, the anointed one that the prophets had proclaimed would come. He was to be an anointed king from the lineage of David, and he was to restore Israel. So declaring Jesus as a Messiah was not actually unique. The historian Josephus says that several Messiah claimants were in the first century, and they were deceivers, deluders of the people. And under the pretense or falsehood of divine illumination, they had prevailed on the multitudes to act like madmen and then went before them to the wilderness, pretending that God there would show them the signs of liberty. The Romans were snuffing out Messiah's right and left. But this Jesus was different. This Jesus Messiah who they thought they had crucified and buried had risen again and had been seen by many people and now had ascended to the right hand of the Father. He and his followers had not been snuffed out. And not only this, but Peter claims that Jesus was not just God's appointed king or prophet, but he was the Kairos, the Lord himself. He had authority equal to God because he was God. And then he was now sitting on the right hand of the Father. Peter could not be more clear about who Jesus was, nor could he be more clear about who the listeners were. These devoted followers of Mosaic law had committed a great sin. They had murdered the true Messiah, who was the Lord God himself, who had given their life for him, them. The verdict was clear, and it only had two responses. Either one, to reject Peter's words as false and therefore declaring that both Peter and Jesus were, as the chief priest said, blasphemers. Or two, to accept that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. And they would have to come face to face with the sin that they had committed. In today's culture, there's a rising trend to throw in a third narrative option. That being that Jesus was a great teacher, even a martyr with whom any suffering person could relate to. And while it does say in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, that we have a high priest, Jesus, who empathizes with our every weakness, God's narrative about who Jesus was does not stop here. He is not just another holy man who says good things and who can relate to his followers. Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. We are like this crowd. We have sentenced him to death. Our sin has done this. We either accept this as true or declare it as false. And if you think about it, logically, the pressure probably would have tended for them to reject Peter's claim. To accept Jesus would not only mean that they would have to acknowledge the depravity of their own hearts, but they would also have to look back at their family and their culture and the religion that they had grown up with and figure out that it was incomplete without Jesus and wrong. Then they would have to go explain themselves to their family and possibly face excommunication from those that they loved. The pressure was not only personal, it was social, because you can probably imagine that neither the Jews nor the Romans would be so enamored with having Jesus be called the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. 
This would sentence them to a life of persecution and for some even martyrdom, meaning that they died for what they believed in. So this human nature reason alone would certainly not be a reason enough for them to cut, be cut to the heart and accept Peter's words. So what drives them to the conclusion? Actually, the answer is found in Peter's sermon already. Peter says in Acts 2:33 that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and the Spirit has been poured out that you may now see and you may now hear. The Father has raised Jesus, Jesus is exalted, and therefore the Holy Spirit is poured out, enabling the words of God that Peter speaks to pierce asunder between the joints and the marrow and cut to the heart. And in response, the crowd is overwhelmed, and all they can say is, brothers, what should we do? Now, in preparing this morning's lesson, you can imagine that it was rather difficult a time of trial and remembering of the times when Jesus had cut me to the heart. I had grown up in a Christian family, and I don't really remember the time when I didn't know Jesus. Glory and thanks be to God for that. But I, too, had to undergo spiritual heart surgery. I can distinctly remember a time in college my freshman year when on the outside, I looked pretty good. I even looked like a flower. I was pre-med. I even liked organic chemistry, <laughs> did. Um, and I had a little job. I was teaching aerobics, so I was like working out, all these things. I didn't drink, I didn't stay out all hours. But I thought, and as a Christian, I actually thought that I had arrived. You see, I believed that Jesus had died for my sin. I had studied other religions and philosophers in English class in particular in high school. And I had accepted Jesus for me, not just because my family had told me to do, which was like the cool Christian thing to do, right? And I literally remember saying to God, okay, God, like, I think I'm like, I'm done, right? I've arrived. <sighs> Thank you to all of you. We're senior people that are now laughing. I laugh at myself. Um, but you see, the symptoms of spiritual heart failure were beginning to set in. I was really lonely, really lonely. And I had tried to join a sorority, but as a turn of events happened, I turned in the wrong paper to the wrong office, and so I was sitting there on match day, like waiting to match, and um, there was no match for me. And I was really heartbroken. Um, that's all right, God can work through those heartbreaks, right? And I was walking around campus one day, and I sensed God saying to me, Ellen, do you love these people? Is what breaks your heart the same thing as what breaks my heart? Or is your heart broken because you are bemoaning your pride and your insufficiencies, especially when they're exposed? I was cut to the heart by what God had to say to me. Even though I didn't hear an audible voice, I could hear it loud and clear. And I prayed for God to not only be my Savior, but my Lord, and that he would change me it's like toddler hands. You're like, give it to mommy, right? I've felt over and over again when God has had to pry open my hands, and I've prayed for that to happen for myself when I know I can't give up a situation for him to cut me to the heart and be Lord over my life. And so then God began to do a good work. You see, I see myself in this Pentecost crowd, devout, following the rules, but their sin 
as mine did, had killed Jesus. My selfish acts and thoughts were ultimately the sins against God that had killed Jesus, my Messiah and my Lord. I too am a sinner who's saved by grace, who can only stand in awe of Jesus for what he's done for me. And if you think about it, you know how the crowd felt. What should we do? And Peter had the words because Jesus had told him in the Great Commission before he ascended into heaven, repent and be baptized. The word repent here doesn't just to mean to be sorry for yourself, confess what you had done. It actually is meta or change, pneumo, mind. So change your mind, change your purpose when Jesus is Lord over your life. As Paul writes in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we acknowledge the cost of our sin and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in the greatest act of unconditional sacrificial love that someone could ever show, how could we go on living according to our ways or to the ways of the world. Jesus is worthy of being called Lord over our hearts and our lives. We can no longer be governed by what society says is desirable or permissible. We can no longer follow what our hearts feel is good and right. We are to be governed by what God's will for us is. That will is good, acceptable, and perfect. God's will will be challenging to accept at times, even difficult, but we have to rely upon the promises of the Father that they are trustworthy and true. He has proven this love and his trustworthiness because of what Jesus did on the cross. If our hearts are truly pierced by the message of the gospel, we must live transformed by it. The outward sign of our inward metanumo changed mind is baptism. And while I'm not going to get into the doctrine fully of baptism today, I wanted to pause to clarify one aspect. The act of baptism itself is not what saves us from our sin. We are saved by the grace of God through faith when we accept that Jesus has paid the price for our sin and has taken it away 100%. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And as in baptism, we die with Christ in the water. We are washed away and we put on his righteousness. And as we rise again out of the water, we are united with Christ eternally to live a life with him. As Colossians 2, 11 through 12 reads, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you will also raise with him through your faith in, working, in the workings out of God who has raised him, Jesus, from the dead. Repentance and baptism are the actions when we believe that the truth that God has sent Jesus to be our Lord and our Christ. We have sinned against him, but he has offered us forgiveness. But Peter says we are not left there and our salvation. God continues to transform us. The triune God continues to transform us. 
First Peter says that we are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Colossians again, 2, 13 through 14. For we were dead in our sin and our uncircumcised flesh, but God has made us alive with Christ. He has forgiven all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. He has nailed it to the cross. Now, after this heartbreaking uh, spiritual heart surgery that I had in college, I joined InterVarsity, and at one of our retreats, we studied this verse, and we did this activity with it, where we took all of the sins that entangled us and tied us down and made us feel condemned and not free in Christ. And we wrote them on Post-it notes, and we took a little hammer and a nail, and we took an old wooden cross, and we tacked it up on there and left all that sin up there so that we could be alive in Christ. And I hope when you read this verse, you think about that or even do that activity yourself. It's so powerful to really understand the love of Jesus and his forgiveness for you. And again, God's work of salvation doesn't even stop there. He has given us the gifts of the Spirit. Now, the gifts of the Spirit, we could talk a long time about because there's actually a lot of references in the New Testament about what the gifts of the Spirit are. But I wanted to go back to Jesus' words in John 14 through 16, which we studied earlier this year. So Jesus tells his disciples that if they love him and they keep his commands, he will send the spirit of truth, who is to be a helper, to convict. Well, that's a, usually helpers are not the convictors, but in this case, it is a help. So the helper will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If you think about it, the Holy Spirit is that interrogation light that exposes the sin in our hearts. And then in Acts 1, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come and empower the disciples, which they have seen, to be witnesses not only in Jerusalem but out throughout the world. And we see these first fruits in Acts 2 as this international crowd is convicted of the truth of Jesus and will go home to tell the good news of the gospel. The Holy Spirit does not even stop here because throughout Acts, these early Christians are moved by the Holy Spirit to have discernment about their ministry. And not even that, but the Holy Spirit is poured out to Gentiles, non-Jewish folk, and as a result, they worship God too, further fulfilling exactly what Jesus had promised to do. And then finally, we see the work of the Father who is faithfully fulfilling his promises to send the Son and the Spirit to do this work of redemption. Peter says to them that this promise is for you and your children, for those who are far off, everyone, everyone, who will call upon the Lord and who the Lord calls to himself. This is the same promise that was written way back in Genesis when God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And now we see the first fruits of this coming true. Not only would the descendants of the Jews, biological children of Abraham, be included, but as Matt said earlier, there is a spiritual descendancy also for everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord and who God calls to himself. So acknowledging the, the redemptive work of God that we have considered today, what will your response be? And as a reminder, there's really only two options, to, to call it false or to call it true. 
Maybe this is the first time that you've heard the gospel message that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. We are indebted because of our sin, but through his great love and his forgiveness and his sacrifice on the cross, he has taken off our sin and nailed it to the cross so that we can be transformed by his righteousness. And that he has given the Holy Spirit to be our guide, our helper, to convict us so that we go to him again for our spiritual heart surgery. Maybe you have already accepted Jesus and you can clearly recall a recent time where you've been cut to the heart and seen the Lord's work in your life. Would you share that with somebody so that they could be blessed and you can join, as this crowd did, of 3,000 people worshiping the Lord and being, again, reminded of your great salvation? Or maybe you're feeling a little dry, and it's been a minute since your heart was cut. Maybe you might be missing one of these aspects of God's work in your life. Have you lost hope and confidence in the promises of God the Father? Do you still consider them trustworthy and true? Is Jesus your savior who has paid the price for your sin, but maybe not quite your Lord? who wants to transform and change your heart if you would invite him in? Have you not listened to the Holy Spirit as maybe there's that nudge in the back of your mind that there's something that you need to be transformed? Maybe there's some spiny behaviors on the outside that are, ref are reflective of a spiny heart in the middle. So if you think about it, the first church was made up of this crazy crowd. The very same crowd that had crucified Christ was now being transformed. There is no sin, no depth, no height, no anywhere where you are so far gone that the love of Jesus can't transform you and make you new. That's the message of Pentecost. So I wanted to end with a story that's actually depicted in a movie called Like Something the Lord Made. This movie tells the amazing story of a man named Vivian Thomas. He was a brilliant African-American scientist who wanted to go to medical school. But in that time, he wasn't accepted because of the color of his skin. But in a lab, he had actually developed the first heart surgery for a condition called Tertology of Fallot. And all medical speak aside, what this means is that our blue deoxygenated blood can't get to the lungs to be oxygenated, and therefore our body can't get enough oxygenated blood. All right? And so what this would look like is that these children were so deoxygenated that they couldn't eat. They lounged around. They would actually squat to try to help their hearts to be better. Their hands were blue when you looked at them. Their lips and their tongue were blue and they would die. But Vivian Thomas developed this surgery in dogs and then taught it to Dr. Blaylock, whom the surgery is now named after, and Dr. Tosig, who was a cardiologist. Fortunately, he didn't get his name on it. Um, but he taught these other surgeons humbly how to do this, and he saved a bunch of babies. And the, the surgery is pretty miraculous because you take this child that can't even eat and they, they are so lethargic that they're going to die, you reroute their heart, and then boom, you have a child that can run and skip and play, and their hands are pink, and their lips are pink, 
and they're transformed. So if you think about it, before we even can have heart surgery, we have to be put to sleep by an anesthesiologist who breathes for us. It's kind of like the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is like our spiritual heart surgeon who has to come and reroute our crazy hearts and in the inside so they can be filled with the fruits of the Holy Spirit and we can truly live transformed by it until one day we get to meet our surgeon face to face and give him glory. But I want to say this is not a one-time act. So these children that undergo this heart surgery have to follow up with the cardiologist. They have to take their hearts in for a checkup, right? So that's through prayer, reading your Bible, being part of your small group, so that the Holy Spirit can say, hey, maybe you got some spiky stuff that needs to come out, either from our behaviors on the outside, but the spiny stuff in the middle has to come out too, so that we can really be good and transformed and discern the will of God, which is good and perfect and acceptable. So maybe for a moment, close your eyes here, ask God through the Holy Spirit, what, Lord, would you have me be convicted of? Maybe Jesus wants to cut you to the heart and it'll hurt to face your sin, to be exposed. But trust him, because Jesus was also cut to the heart for us. And if you think about it, we in our own self cannot have this radical response on our own. It has to be something only the Lord can make. Let us pray. Father, as your word says in the Psalms, we pray with David. Create in us a clean heart, O Lord. Restore in us a new spirit. Bring us back to the joy of, the, of our salvation, whether that be for the first time or the nth time. And for that purpose, may we rise to praise your holy name and declare that your word is true and that you, Jesus, are our Lord. Can the Holy Spirit come in our lives and continually push us towards you, Jesus, for you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of honor and glory. Amen and amen.